Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Jen Fitzgerald with New Books in Poetry, welcoming you to a special edition of our podcast. Today we have the opportunity to have three discussions in one. Lady of the Moon by Headmistress Press 2015 is a collection that not only features the work of Amy Lowell, but also a series of sonnets in response to Lowell's works, as well as a critical essay about the poet's life, love, and work. We have two distinguished women joining us today. Lillian Faderman is an internationally known scholar of lesbian history and literature, as well as ethnic history and literature. Among her many honors are six Lambda Literary Awards, two American Library Association Awards, and several Lifetime Achievement Awards for scholarship. She is the author of The Gay Revolution, Surpassing the Love of Men, and Odd Girls and Twilight Lovers, all New York Times notable books. Mary Merriam advocates for the right of women to love each other in their poetry and art and strives to give their work a place at the table, even if it's only a table of her own creation. She writes about and publishes such work in the journal she founded, Lavender Review, at the press she co-founded, Headmistress Press, and at Miss Magazine, The Critical Flame, and The Gay and Lesbian Review. Her poetry collections, The Countess of Flatbroke, The Poet's Zodiac, The Lillian Trilogy, and The Lady of the Moon, honor a cosmos of strong creative women. Her first full-length collection, Conjuring My Leafy Muse, was nominated for the Poet's Prize. Her poems have appeared in 12 anthologies, including Measure for Measure, an anthology of poetic meters, Penguin Random House 2015, and many publications, including Literary Imagination, American Life and Poetry, Cimarron Review, Rattle, and The New York Times. Welcome, Lillian and Mary. Thank you for having me, Jen. So we have the rare opportunity to speak not only about a lauded poet of the canon, but also a scholarly essay and group of sonnets. So this is definitely a first for us, and we're very excited. Um, So may I ask why Amy Lowell? Well, I became interested in Amy Lowell uh, many decades ago when I was working on my book, Surpassing the Love of Men that came out in 1981. And one thing that interested me is it was so clear to me that that many of her poems, in fact, her best poems, were what we would call um, lesbian poems today. Uh, They were love poems to other women. And I wanted to find out who that other woman was and how the poetry reflected her life. Hmm. And what about you, Mary? Well, I had an idea to write a sonnet sequence about a lesbian couple, and after I read Lillian's essay, I was smitten by Amy and Ada. So I wanted to research and read a lot more about Amy Lowell. Um, so what goes into creating a collection like this? How did you decide what to include and how to give it shape? Well, it was a five-year process, wow. and 
started in 2010, I decided that first I would select the poems by Amy Lowell that I wanted to study, then write the same number of sonnets for my sequence. So I selected a group of Amy's short lyric poems, poems that, as Lillian argues, were written directly to Ada, poems of, quote, impassioned eroticism, as Lillian describes them. <laughs> and I narrowed my selection of Amy's poems to those referenced in Lillian's essay and those which didn't rhyme or scan. Um, did I answer your question? Um, you did, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, and then when it comes to um, deciding not only to take the, the low poems that are you know within the public domain and the essay and your poems, um, I was thinking of a much more overarching idea of shape. Like, is this something that you knew immediately or you just knew that you wanted to write about Amy Lowell and that this is what organically took form? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I wanted to read a few lines from a low poem called A Rainy Night, in which she's lying in bed with Ada, um, according to Lillian's argument, which I totally believe. Mm -hmm. And the lines are, I am counting the folds of the canopy. You are lying beside me, waiting, but I do not turn. In the silver light, you would be too beautiful. And there are ten pleats on this side of the bed canopy, and 10 on the other. So I think that Lady of the Moon is structured like this bed with a set number of poems on both sides of Lillian's essay. Mm. Um, when I read that poem in this collection, um, the, the pleats really kind of resonated with me, and I was wondering, you know, viscerally what that is and then metaphorically what that is. Um, well, what did that mean to you, the 10 pleats on this side and 10 pleats on the other? Well... I think when you're writing sonnets, you're always counting. So mm -hmm. you're counting feet, you're counting lines. And um, in this case, with making this book, I was counting the poems I selected of Amy Lowell's, and then I had decided to write the same number of sonnets as, as Amy Lowell poems that I selected. So it was, um, what does a 10 pleat? mean i don't really know what they meant to amy lowell but i know that it resonated with me so mm -hmm. absolutely and I, I i love the the line just because it it suggests so perfectly what the poem is about her excitement in being next to this woman and it, it's so overwhelming that that she has to pause before she could look at this lovely creature who shares her bed and and she pauses by the the uh, distraction of counting the pleats and i just I, I think the image is is really a stunning one yeah no it definitely is i did i wrote that phrase down from lily's essay delicious excitement of anticipation it's how she describes a rainy a rainy night mm. Yeah, I, I like I like that idea a lot about counting the pleats as a way to distract oneself from the beloved or to, you know, heighten anticipation. And um, along the same lines, I also decided to take my time writing the sonnet sequence. So I spent a year and a half writing 27 sonnets, and so I think that has to do kind of with the um, the prolonging the excitement of writing them. Mm. 
So let's hear some of these sonnets. Um, would you please read Sonnet 1 on page 71 and then Sonnet 17 on page 87? Sure. Here's one. I know my mind and I've read many books. Romance, I thought, would always pass me by. Lovely romance. Her fervent, fluttery looks not meant for me. I turned away, too shy. Then I set eyes on Ada. Through the gloom, the curtains rising, the thunderous applause. Or was the thunder mine alone? The room, so dark before, struck lightning, and the cause was Ada's voice and hair and hands and dress playing on all my senses like the world seen fresh in childhood. I kept my seat, but less sure of my place, myself. My past uncurled and left me fully present with desire to hold this woman's flames of silver fire. In year 17, you live inside the letters of this line, curving beneath my quill's unsteady flow. I bring you to my lips, a glass of wine. Drunk on the purple wind, the curtains blow suddenly, gusts of raindrops on the sill. I close the window slightly. Lightning shows herself and thunder jolts me. Let me fill this word with only you. Today the crows converse outside the stillness of my room, the sameness punctuated by their cause. Tonight, the calm, excuse me, uh, better pause on that. <laughs> you want to start yeah. the, the piece again? Okay. I'm okay. sorry. No, don't don't you worry about a thing. Hold on, let me just write that down. Approximately 11. Start. On it, 17. You are doing a really good job, don't you worry. And if you need to go get water or something, we can take a short break. Um. Well, do you want me to start over? I can. I don't need a break, but if you want to start over, if you want me to read this from the beginning again. Um, just just uh, sonnet uh, 17, and you can say it again. Yeah, it's... I mean 17, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Go whenever you're ready. All right, here we go again. This is number 17. You live inside the letters of this line, curving beneath my quills, unsteady flow. I bring you to my lips a glass of wine. Drunk on the purple wind, the curtains blow, suddenly gusts of raindrops on a sill. I close the window slightly. Lightning shows herself and thunder jolts me. Let me fill this word with only you. Today the crows conversed outside the stillness of my room, the sameness punctuated by their cause. Tonight the calm is broken by the boom, wherein I write my thunderstorm of laws. I swear the air is fresher from the rain, and you are rain against my window pane. Thank you. Um, so beyond the poems that appear at the front of the collection, how did you immerse yourself in Amy Lowell's work in order to create these sonnets in the voice of Lowell? And were you imagining what the burnt letters actually contained? Um, what, what contains the first what draft? The, no, the letters that Ada burned after um, Amy's oh. death. I mean, it just seemed that your sonnets were saying the things that Amy wished she could have said more candidly. 
Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, well, first what I did was I I decided to keep my the input um, kind of spare, and I just read the, my selection of Amy's sonnet uh, poems and Lillian's essay over and over over the year and a half that I wrote the sequence, so that all all of that would sink into my mind, and I could maybe get closer in my sonnets to Amy's feelings for Ada, which is what I was shooting for. And what I did wonder about was the first drafts of Amy's poems, because she and Ada revised them so that they wouldn't be attacked by what Amy called the ward, the Watch and Ward Society, the censors in her day. Mm. And, of course, 100 years later, we don't have the same worries about censorship. Um but um did I answer your question there? <laughs> you um you did, you did. Um because I didn't know if you had researched her a little more in depth or if you had um, you know, beyond what was contained in the book really kind of um, you know, like how method actors just stay in character and stay in, in that voice and in that mindset. Um because the sonnets are are very lol esque. So, I, I was I was curious how you pulled that off. <laughs> I, I think it was mostly just really from just reading over and over again her poem, Amy's poems, and Lillian's essay. Hmm. That's really all I did, and I was just going as close as I could to the feeling of it all, mm-hmm. and little details to you know make it sound like really happened. Yeah. So let's hear some of this essay that we keep talking about. Um, Lillian, could you read the um, the last few pages of the essay, starting on 64? Sure. I'm, I'm discussing um, in the last pages of the essay a sequence of poems called Two Speak Together that appeared in Amy Lowell's 1919 volume, Pictures of a Floating World. And it's it's very clear from the sequence and, and what we know about her that these essays really are autobiographical and the two who are speaking together throughout these poems are Amy Lowell and her uh, lover, Ada Russell. So I'll, I'll read uh, just uh, two or three pages here. I've been talking about uh, the anxiety that Amy Lowell felt whenever she and uh, Ada were separated. And so I, I say here the anxiety of separation is finally broken in the poem Preparation, in which the speaker awaiting her beloved goes to a shop to buy smoke-colored glasses. When the shopman comments, what a world must be yours when it requires to be dimmed by smoke glasses, The speaker responds, not a world, certainly not a world. As the next poem in the sequence of a decade makes clear, it is the beloved who is everything to her and whose bright presence necessitates shaded glasses. While the novelty of their relationship might have worn off through the years, what remains is solid and complete. And these are lines from the poem, A Decade. When you came, you were like red wine and honey, and the taste of you burnt my mouth with its sweetness. 
Now you are like morning bread, smooth and pleasant. I hardly taste you at all, for I know your savor, and I am completely nourished. The last two poems of Two Speak Together anticipate Lowell's early death. She was, by 1919, suffering from various health problems and complications from obesity. In Penumbra, a shadow falls over the two women's relationship. As Lowell envisions the time, she will no longer be there. Unmistakably autobiographical details in this poem, including the description of Lowell's home, Seven Elves, quote, the old house which has known me since the beginning, unquote, and her intention to leave that house to Russell upon her death figure prominently and help to confirm the inspiration and source of the poem sequence in the lives of the two women. The final poem of the sequence, Premier, is a melancholy commentary on the inevitability of aging and death even when one has much to live to. Lowell compares the lovers to two flowers in late autumn, quote, blooming last in a yellowing garden. They have survived, though many who kept them company have faded. Like the earlier verses in the sequence, Premier is a poem of anxiety and fear as the speaker realizes that one or the other of them must soon die. Describing herself as a coward, she hopes she will be first, and Russell, the purple flower, will outlive her being better prepared to survive alone. Quote, very splendid in isolation, uh, uh, better prepared to survive alone than Lowell is. The poem ends in both despair and affirmation. Many mornings there cannot be now for us both. Ah, dear, I love you. Even those later biographers who have understood that these poems are autobiographical and that they reflect Lowell's life with Russell have refused to acknowledge that they are lesbian poems, that they picture not only the two women's spiritual relationships but their sexual relationships as well. Quote, graphic as it appears, there is an air of amorous innocence about the poems, C. David Heyman insists, and then goes on to say that these poems are, quote, too graphic to be taken at face value, since if we read them thus, they become merely a description of lust. But Amy Lowell appears to have seen lust as integral to the fullness of her love for Ada Russell. Once, in great anguish, referring to her obesity, Lowell called herself, quote, a walking sideshow. But no one reading her love poems could have that image of her. It was her ability to love erotically as well as spiritually and to record that love in her poems that restored and continues to restore to Lowell the dignity of which she was robbed by her appearance and by most of her critics. And I, I uh, should 
add here that uh, many of her uh, critics described her after her death as uh, a frustrated spinster and said that, that her frustrations appear. And she wrote a number of, of persona poems of heterosexual women um, longing for dashing suitors. And they say that uh, those frustrations appear in, in those persona poems. And my argument is that those longer poems were simply persona poems, the autobiographical poems were these uh, lyrical poems such as those in Two Speak Together. Mm. I would agree with you. And, and isn't it funny how the obituaries of talented and creative women often feature much, much more criticism than that of their work? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's, it's so true, and it was so true of, of her. There was a, another um, uh, obituary that um, uh, came out almost immediately after her death and was then included uh, in a book by a writer by the name of Clement Wood. It was published in the, uh, about 1926, Lowell died in, in 1925. And um, that obituary uh, and uh, what he says about her in, in his book is that she may have been um, the uh, singer of those who shared her proclivities, uh, but for most of us, he says, she, she does not have universal appeal. Of course, that was his underhanded way of, of suggesting that she was, in fact, lesbian. Mm. Uh, although there were few suggestions of that nature during her lifetime, most critics simply avoided what was so obvious. But he brings it up only to make this uh, homophobic comment about how what she says couldn't possibly be meaningful to any reader but a lesbian. Hmm. And it's a shame that that has resonated and lived on, unfortunately. That type of hate. Um, how long did it take you to to research and write this essay? Well, I uh, I started in in the uh, mid seventies. I actually uh, published um, uh, some things about Amy Lowell. Um, I think in nineteen seventy nine was the first I write about her in uh, my book Surpassing the Love of Men, which came out in. 1981, and I continued through all of these decades to be fascinated by her work. So it, uh, uh, to write the essay itself, I think, and to do the research took about uh, five years, something like that. Okay. Um, so what was something surprising you discovered about Amy Lowell while doing your research? Well, what, what I discovered was uh, what a, a, a passionate and complex woman she was. She was a, a very um, big woman and I think uh, never saw herself as, as beautiful. I think she, she saw in Ada all the things that she felt that, that she wasn't. Uh, and I, I think through their relationship, she, uh, she developed in ways that she would not have developed without uh, Ada's being there for her without without the love that, that they shared. Um, some of her poems are just utterly charming. Some of the 
ada poems in which she sees herself as a, a cavalier or a, a knight of, 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 of medieval times uh, courting this uh, beautiful woman and she uses some of those uh, images of, of medieval knights um, some of her uh, poems show her to be very uh, peremptory in, in their love relationship, and yet behind that there's, uh, there's just this, this uh, tenderness and uh, supplication. It's a very complex relationship uh, emotionally. It, it had such complexity, and it was just really lovely to uh, to discover those things that made Amy Lowell so human and so interesting as, as a human being. And I, I think that so many of, of her critics uh, never understood that about her. If, if um, the general public is at all familiar with her name, it's because in high school, they read one of what I think is one of her worst poems, and that is Patterns, which is a persona poem full of uh, cliches of, of feminine women and masculine men, where they might have uh, read a wonderful poem called Madonna of the Evening Flowers, but they were never told that it was a lesbian poem written by one woman to another woman. And it, for me, it, it was just so fascinating to be able to, to find these poems that were largely neglected and make sense of them through what I discovered of her relationship with Ada Russell. Yeah. Um, one thing that I found surprising was that when, when I first started reading this book, I anticipated it to be much more of an, you know, an Amy Lowell biography, you know, the, the life death type of biography, but her relationship with Ada is, is put out immediately into the forefront and is given the weight that I imagine they would have liked to have given the relationship at the time. Yes. I, 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 I think that that's true, and I think that Mary's poems really do such a great service to to the relationship. I, I I think Mary has succeeded in in saying the things that uh, that Amy Lowell could not have said in print uh, in the early decades of the twentieth century, and I, I I find her poems absolutely compelling and believable. It's just that there's such a wonderful gloss on the poems that Amy Lowell wrote. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, along those lines, I wanted to say that um, Amy had to be so discreet about what she wrote because she was worried about the Watch and Ward Society, the censors of her day. And that was one of the subjects that really interested me a lot. Um, she has this poem, Amy has a poem called, To a Gentleman Who Wanted to See the First Drafts of My Poems in the Interest of Psychological Research into the Workings of the Creative Mind. And the point is that um, Amy and Ada would revise the poems, Amy's poems, so that they could slip past the censors and, and that um, people wouldn't be accusing Amy of being a lesbian and you know, her career would have been going nowhere. 
And I just wanted to read these three lines from that poem. Still I have a word, one moment, stop, before you leave this room. Though I shudder, thinking of you wandering through my beds of bloom, you may come with spade and shovel when I'm safely in the tomb. Mm. <laughs> so I felt like there I was with my spade and shovel, you know, digging through the relationship between Amy and Ada, and um, I don't know. There was one point, at one point, during the year and a half that I was writing the sonnets that I felt like, wait a second, this is private and I shouldn't be doing this, but mostly I didn't feel that way at all. I felt that, I just felt that Amy and Ada would, would really like what we were doing here. Yes, and I, I, I felt the same when I first started writing about Amy Lowell and her relationship with Ada Russell. Um, Amy died in, in 1925, and and she uh, she never announced to the world specifically that that she was a lesbian, and I I wondered if I had the right to do it, and then I came across the poem that Mary just read, and it was almost as though she was telling me, yes, this is what I I wanted done. I'm, I'm safely in my tomb, and these are. Uh, this is a different era, and yes, explore what it was that I was really saying. And Amy was so, she was so, she seems to me so passionate, and she, she was so out, really. I mean, she was kind of like the, um, the Eileen Miles of her day. Mm -hmm. Don't you think? Oh yeah. I mean, she, she just, if she could have, she would have just said, "Look, I'm a lesbian, so you know." Back off, pal. <laughs> but what she realized, of course, in, in her day is she couldn't say that. I, I uh, ran across a very interesting letter that she wrote to D.H. Uh, Lawrence, who uh, was having a lot of uh, trouble uh, with his novel, The Rainbow. In The Rainbow, he describes very graphically uh, first a heterosexual love scene and then a lesbian love scene, and um, Amy Lowell says, you, you, uh, this is wonderful, but it won't fly. You're going to get in trouble. You need to take the India rubber to it, that is the eraser to it. You don't have to change your attitude a particle, but you can't keep getting yourself in trouble by speaking so specifically of sexual things. And what what Amy does is she speaks of sexual things all right in, in her uh, poems about Ada, but she encodes them just enough to to keep her safe in her day, I think. And it's been our job to uh, to decode them. Mm -hmm. And all the critics refused to see for years. I mean, it wasn't until 1975 or so that finally someone wrote a biography suggesting yes. that Amy Lowell was a lesbian. Yes, uh, uh, Jean Gold wrote a, a wonderful biography that came out in 1975 where she does speak openly about the relationship with uh, Ada Russell and uh, earlier relationships that Amy Lowell had as well with other women. You know, I also wanted to say something about Amy Lowell's appearance, which is that she was pretty much the same size as uh, Gertrude Stein, and yet Gertrude Stein wasn't mocked for her weight. I mean, it was terrible how they treated Amy Lowell, calling her names, which I won't even repeat. Mm -hmm. But what Amy Lowell did is she wrote a poem, I think it's called The Bath, 
or something like that, and she's taking a bath nude, and she read this in front of a group of people, and they were all falling out of their chairs. I just love that. <laughs> you know, she was just, she just was just in your face, and, you know, but at the same time, of course, she was um, completely contained. You know, she knew how to walk the line perfectly. Mm -hmm. the, the Gertrude Stein comparison is an interesting one. I, I think uh, just as Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas were a, a huge uh, literary and social center in in Paris uh, during those same years, Amy Lowell and Ada Russell played that role in uh, in Massachusetts in, in Boston. They attracted many literary lights and, of course, uh, lesbians as well. And another way in which um, Amy Lowell and Gertrude Stein were similar is that, uh, as I said, um, Amy Lowell advised D.H. Lawrence to take the India rubber, the eraser, to uh, specific uh, uh, descriptions of uh, sexuality. She uh, did it only in that she encoded, and nevertheless, they're there. Uh, such as in one of my uh, favorite poems, The Weathercock Points Out, which is such a <laughs> graphic poem of lesbian uh, uh, sexuality. But but um, unless one knows what's going on, unless one understands lesbian sexuality, I guess you could entirely miss it. Gertrude Stein did the same kind of thing. She advised um, Ernest Hemingway, to take an India rubber to his work, to, to erase what was too graphic and too sexual. She read his short story up in Michigan, and she said that this won't fly. It's, uh, what she said is it's uh, uh, in like a, a picture that can't be hung in a museum or a gallery because it's too sexually graphic. So she said you, you, you can't be that explicit. And yet she wrote all of these wonderful pieces about uh, uh, orgasm between uh, two women, uh, like uh, As a Wife Has a Cow, A Love Story, or Lifting Belly. Those are very sexual pieces, but they're encoded, and you, you have to first have a few hints about Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas before you could understand how sexual those pieces are. Mm -hmm. um, so, if we could switch gears just slightly to aesthetics, um, why a photo of Ada on the cover? Why did I put Ada on the cover? Yeah. Um, because, <clears throat> first of all, I really like this picture. It's kind of like a moon, her hat, her feather hat, and, and the, mm -hmm. um, the brim is kind of like the orbit of the moon. And I think it's a really good photo of her face. And most of all, I think I wanted her to be included in a big way because really all the poems Amy wrote in this book are to Ada. And um, I don't know. Ada stays in the background a little bit, but I think she, I'm sure she was a very special person like Amy. And she was certainly Amy's. Use, I think there's no question about that. Amy at one point quipped that they, they ought to hang a sign over their estate that said Amy Lowell and Ada Russell, makers of fine poems, <laughs> like, like makers of fine cigars or whatever. But the, the point is that 
that she thought that Ada Russell was very much a part of her poem making. Mm-hmm. So what were you hoping to memorialize with this collection? How were how are you hoping to shift the conversation around Amy Lowell? Well, I, I don't I don't understand why she has doesn't have a more publicity, you know, a better reputation or whatever, or isn't taught more. I, I think my biggest hope for this book is that it will be used for teaching about Amy Lowell. Mm. Um, I've learned quite a bit. I mean, I, I knew her, you know, just as you said, through anthologies and through, you know, almost taught as like a, a tertiary canon. Um, but she, her work is really important. It's beautiful, too. It's so fresh. And no matter how many times I read her poems, each time there was something new. They're very um, similar in a certain way. I mean, they're definitely an Amy Lowell style. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say, Lillian? Well, only that I, I think it's it's so sad that young people um, are, if they're introduced to her at all, uh, it's it's often by her least interesting poems, such as the poem Pattern, which is so often included in anthologies of great American poetry for the common reader. And she wrote poems that are, are so much better than that, so much more interesting, I think. So for the final portion um, of the book, which we also want to highlight, which is the beginning, um, could we share some of Lowell's work? Maybe one of you could read um, Strain on page 6, and then the other could read Penumbra on page 30? Sure. Uh, Would you like me to begin? Sure. Strain. It is late, and the clock is striking thin hours, but sleep has become a terror to me, lest I wake in the night bewildered and stretching out my arms to comfort myself with you, clasp instead the cold body of darkness. All night it will hunger over me and push and undulate against me, breathing into my mouth and passing long fingers through my drifting hair. Only the dawn can loose me from it, and the gray streaks of morning melt it from my side. Bring many candles, though they stab my tired brain and hurt it, for I am afraid of the twinning of the twine. Let me take that again. Bring many candles, though they stab my tired brain and hurt it, for I am afraid of the twining of the darkness and dare not sleep. Thank you. Vermeer? Jen? Um, Penumbra on page 30. Oh, Penumbra. Okay. Penumbra. As I sit here in the quiet summer night, suddenly from the distant road, there comes the grind and rush of an electric car. And from still farther off, an engine puffs sharply followed by the drawn-out shunting scrape of a freight train. These are the sounds that men make in the long business of living. They will always make such sounds, years after I am dead and cannot hear them. Sitting here in the summer night, I think of my death. What will it be like for you then? You will see my chair with its bright chintz covering 
standing in the afternoon sunshine, as now. You will see my narrow table at which I have written so many hours. My dogs will push their noses into your hands and ask, ask, clinging to you with puzzled eyes. The old house will still be here, the old house which has known me since the beginning, the walls which have watched me while I played, soldiers, marbles, paper dolls, which have protected me and my books. The front door will gaze down among the old trees where, as a child, I hunted ghosts and Indians. They will look out on the wide gravel sweep where I rolled my hoop and at the rhododendron bushes where I caught black-spotted butterflies. The old house will guard you, as I have done. Its walls and rooms will hold you, and I shall whisper my thoughts and fancies, as always, from the pages of my book. You will sit here some quiet summer night, listening to the puffing trains, but you will not be lonely, for these things are a part of me. And my love will go on speaking to you through the chairs and the tables and the pictures as it does now through my voice and the quick, necessary touch of my hand. Thank you. I wanted to end with that, um, obviously for a few reasons, Penumbra being a good ending poem. But um, I know that you were talking about this as though it was written to Ada. And, and I wonder if maybe it was also written to the reader. Um, as an invitation to to feel safe within the confines of her rooms, her stanzas, her poems, that the place where she composed this work, the, the house that she lived in, protected her just as she cloaked and and created these stealth poems to protect herself. Um, I, of course, could be reading too deeply into that. I'm a poet, and I have that tendency. I like that reading of it, too. Oh, good, yeah. good. So I'm not crazy. <laughs> No way. <laughs> Is it time for me to read one more poem by her? Absolutely. Okay. This is Madonna of the Evening Flowers. I think this is just so gorgeous. All day long I have been working. Now I am tired. I call. Where are you? But there is only the oak tree rustling in the wind. The house is very quiet. The sun shines in on your books, on your scissors and thimble just put down. But you are not there. Suddenly I am lonely. Where are you? I go about searching. Then I see you, standing under a spire of pale blue larkspur with a basket of roses on your arm. You are cool, like silver, and you smile. I think the Canterbury bells are playing little tunes. You tell me that the peonies need spraying, that the columbines have overrun all bounds, that the pyrus japonica should be cut back and rounded. You tell me those things, but I look at you, heart of silver, white heart flame of polished silver, burning beneath the blue steeples of the larkspur, and I long to kneel instantly at your feet while all about us peel the loud, sweet tedeums of the Canterbury Bells. That is a beautiful poem. Yeah, lovely. Now, why did you want to share that? What, what is it about this one that resonates with you? I, I, I think it, it so much describes everything that I've been able to learn 
about their relationship, um, not only the, the fact that uh, Ada was a master gardener, they lived on a large estate that um, Amy had inherited, a place called Seven Elves that uh, was in her family for several generations. But it, it also, for me, says so much about their relationship, the, the peremptory aspect. Uh, she calls, where are you? And then the the supplicatory aspect, she just wants to kneel at, at um, Ada's feet, this Madonna of the evening flowers, while the Canterbury bells are chiming. It's just, it's, it's, it's charming and uh, revelatory and I, I think just really lovely. It is. I think it's her greatest poem. Really? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on to New Books and Poetry to discuss this new collection. And I also want to thank you for the necessary work that Headmistress Press does for our literary community. Well, thank you very much, Jen. Thank you for inviting me, Jen. Of course. This has been Jen Fitzgerald with New Books and Poetry, reminding you to support all the arts, but especially poetry.